So I wasn't out looking for that. I wasn't out, you know, pursuing social justice work, a human rights type um, response to a need. I, I just learned about human trafficking. And when I learned about it, I, I kind of was like, wait, is this like slavery? You know, is this something that's that we, we learned about in history class and it's something that's happening still to this day? And so as I learned about that, I am. Um, I, for about two years, it wasn't like I'm out of this you know, job and moving on to this. For two years, I really deliberated, what do I do? What's my response now that I'm learning about this issue and, and really understanding the scale of the issue? You know, at the time, it was 27 million people enslaved in our world. Now it's at 40 to 45 million people. It was uh, initially it was a $32 billion industry, which is massive already. But now it's, it's estimated about $150 billion industry. Welcome to episode 66 of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized, transformational social impact and to shine a light on all the good happening in a world often hyper-focused on the negative. Today's episode features Dan Emmer, Executive Director at Worthwhile Wear, an international organization that works to rescue and restore victims of human trafficking and sexual exploitation. They provide wraparound services for those that they're serving, aiming to help them access further educational opportunities as well as escape poverty, including through working in the organization's stores, Worthwhile Thrift. Dan and I discuss his spending most of his teenage years in Ukraine, why he left a cushy engineering job to tackle human trafficking, whether legalizing and regulating sex work will help to alleviate the issue or not, and much more. Here is Dan Emmer on People Are the Answer. Dan, thanks so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'd love if you could just start off by telling us who you are, your, what your current role is, and uh, yeah, where you're based. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm Dan Emmer. I'm the executive director and founder of a nonprofit organization uh, called Worthwhile Wear. And uh, Worthwhile Wear is kind of based in several locations. We started our work in India, but primarily we're based out of the Philadelphia, greater Philadelphia area. With a, lot of, a lot of our programming kind of in multi-counties in the greater Philadelphia area, spanning from Philly out to uh, Harrisburg, PA. For people that know their PA geography, um, that's where we're at set up. Nice. In, in life in general, what would you say motivates you? Um, I think for me, it's been kind of a shift in, in perspectives over the year. I think motivation earlier on in my life, if you were to, to ask that, it was, you know, the American dream, get get money and, and buy stuff, right? But then I think as I grew older and kind of had opportunities, I um, started to understand that what motivated me was um, investing in people and seeing seeing the impact that that can have. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a different type of, uh, you know, income or, or dividends that are paid back as seen lives change. And that's, that's really my motivation. Yeah, no, I love that. Obviously, this being people are the answer. Investing in people is one of the best things that you can do. And we certainly appreciate that over here. I love I love the, the what your, your podcast is all about. I think there should be more of that because uh, I think we neglect to uh, see the importance of investing in others. But when we do, um, we see impacts that, that go beyond, you know, just ourselves making impacts in other lives, other people and, and generationally even as well. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, there's there's so much focus on the negative going on in the world. But I think focusing on the people that are doing good work and that are investing in people is certainly a path to show people uh, all the great things that are happening. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, 
I know this is an interesting answer for you. Where did you grow up and what was it like? Yeah, well, I think um, I'll kind of give a brief story on that because uh, I want to lead to what that is. I think, you know, a lot of times you ask, like, what do I do? And I quickly said I run a nonprofit. What led up to that nonprofit was really what I would say is my my, my parents giving a, a great example, because as a kid, I grew up just outside of Philadelphia and I was the youngest of four kids. And so uh, we were blessed with a lot of things. So my parents, um, you know, kind of spoiled us. My dad worked for Prudential um, in finance, had some startup companies. My mother was a nurse at the ICU. We had 18 acres of land. We had dirt bikes. So I had two older brothers and older sister. We had an in-ground swimming pool. We had ponds to go fishing in, all this fun stuff. Um, and one day, you know, my parents uh, brought us together as a family and I was 12 at the time. And uh, they said, you know, we want to we want to talk to you kids. Um, we know all this stuff that we've given you is really fun, but it's, it's not much really important. And um, they essentially said to us, you know, we're going to sell everything and we're going to move to this country of Ukraine that had just come out from under communism. And so um, that for me is, is where I grew up. But as a 12 year old, when I heard that, you know, when, what was said and they said, we're going to move to another country every year, we'd gone to Cancun, Mexico for vacation. So I thought we were like going to an equivalent um, white sandy beaches of Ukraine, which <laughs> there weren't any. Um, but yeah, my growing up was there uh, in, in Ukraine from the age of 12 till uh, about 18 is when I was there growing up. Wow. I mean, that sounds like quite the change of pace, quite the experience. Um, you know, can you talk about how that sort of changed you and made you who you are today? Yeah, I mean, again, we could probably do a whole nother podcast on that. I think just people understanding what is it like to grow up in um, not just another country. I think we kind of think of countries as locations, which they are. But I think more importantly is, is a different culture. And so for me, one of the biggest takeaways was understanding the impact and the value of culture. And not just that there are different cultures, but respecting different cultures and learning from different cultures. I think we as Americans can be tempted to kind of go into a place that maybe the infrastructure isn't as good, or maybe there are things that are a little bit different than what we're accustomed to. And our default sometimes um, is to, hey, I think it should be done this way, my way, or as it's perceived as your culture is, is kind of off in this area, my culture is, is right. And I will tell you this, I learned so much as a young, as a young kid, as a young man, um, to have a different perspective and understanding that um, there are a variety of cultures in this, this world and, and you can learn and glean a lot from, from all of those. And that's actually a word that you'll hear pre pretty much in my everyday conversation with our staff and with individuals is the importance of culture and understanding where others have come from, where you have grown up and how those all can interact and um, work better together when we have that respect for each other. So that would be probably my biggest takeaway. Well, it sounds like you were very fortunate to learn that lesson early. And you know, normally I ask people about an experience or experiences from their childhood that showed them the importance of giving back. But it seems like you kind of lived that with your parents, the what it was like in, to give back and the importance of that. Yeah, when we when we went to Ukraine, I mean, our focus was doing a lot of humanitarian aid work. Um, locally, we went to a lot of hospitals. Since my mom was a, an ICU nurse, she worked with a lot of local hospitals to get a lot of supplies. And uh, again, as a as a twelve year old, thirteen year old, going around and, and helping unload these containers full of what was essentially discarded equipment here in the U.S. because it was outdated. There was like brand new technology, especially when coming out from under communism. And so seeing the impact that that had, and, and again, it was it was um, giving these items to people not to get a, a financial gain in return, 
simply giving them to benefit them and seeing that impact. And now we're talking about, you know, many, many years later, this is 30 years later, those same kids I grew up with, those same kids I sat on, on the tree stump on the street with are, are my still, still my friends today. And they are going out and kind of seeing that impact of, of how uh, my family in, engaged with them and worked with them. Then they now are going out in the communities, in the villages, in the cities and delivering um, food, delivering um, during the winter, they're delivering um, wood furnaces because gas was being cut off from Russia and things like that. So it, again, it has a, a ripple effect, a generational effect. And I very fortunate to see it as a young man, young kid growing up, seeing that uh, firsthand. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. What a, what a different childhood. Um, and, you know, it sounds like it was really impactful in sort of creating your foundation. Uh, at what point did you go back to the U.S.? Uh, I came back when I <clears throat> it was my senior year of high school and I was uh, I was a slow learner. So my senior year, I was 18 years old. I came back. I know my others, you know, typically 17, but I came back at 18 um, and, and basically finished up my high school and then moved on to college. Um, and that, that's kind of my transition period coming back. And I've since I've gone back to Ukraine. I've been the last of us there was in 2018. It was going to go back in 2020. Um, and then when COVID that delayed it and then also the war, uh, haven't been able to be back since, uh, 2018. Yeah, that's, that's tough. And, um, curious to know a little bit more on, on how you feel about that. But first, um, you know, what was it like kind of transitioning back into the U S education system? Um, these are great questions. So I think, uh, you know, I can tell you educationally, it wasn't, it wasn't a huge change for me, um, because it was, um, you know, I kind of maintained a lot of the, the schooling uh, that would uh, qualify to U.S. standards. So academically, it was about the same, wasn't much of a shift. But for me, it was this is the lesson learned when I, I referenced culturally. Culturally, it was very different. So I, I came back uh, and not even realizing I came back essentially a, a Ukrainian because I had grown up there my formative years. So when I came back, I was trying to force on my friends here in the U.S. that I'd grown up as with as a young kid. Now we're, we're in high school, we're seniors in high school. I was trying to impose upon them this Ukrainian view. Uh, and, uh, you know, us Americans can have pretty strong opinions and we can be pretty strong in our stance. Didn't, didn't get well received, um, but it was a very good learning experience for me. So, you know, coming back into the schooling system, I would, I would just commonly use the phrase, actually it ended up in my yearbook um, of when I was in Ukraine and I would lead into every, all my anecdotal stories of my upbringing when I was in Ukraine. Um, and it was, you know, it was received with some, some patience, some tolerance, but a lot of times it was, uh, uh, not as much. So I think for me, that was the, the transition back was trying to learn how to integrate essentially two cultures. One I had initially was born into, then another one I grew up in and then another one I was coming back to. And high school kids here certainly don't give it easy to their peers, you know? No, no, you would think so, but not quite. So, so you mentioned from there, uh, you know, going to college, um, you know, I read you went to Clearwater Christian College. How did you end up there and what was that experience like? Is it wrong to say because of the beaches and the sun? Um, that, was, that was a motivator. Um, Clearwater had, a, a, you know, one of the best beaches in America. So that was, that was one motivation. And I, I also was looking for business um, schooling, looking for my bachelor's in business administration. And so they had a, a good, um, good set of, of, you know, curriculum for that. And, and, uh, the beach again, didn't, didn't hurt. So that's where I went. Uh, it also is where my, my brother, uh, who's older than me, he was going there. 
Um, so he kind of gave me some inroads to that. And so it was good for those, those things. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was able to kind of get a little more well-versed in understanding business, business administration through that schooling there. Got it. And, uh, that sounds definitely enticing to go there for the weather and then glad it was a good experience. And, um, I know you went into business development at Remcal products after that, you know, what led you into that role and what did you take away from it? Yeah. So for me, I think it's just kind of those natural things. I think you and I talked about, about, you know, serial entrepreneurship. Um, I feel like I'm one of those, you can't really escape it. So even when I was at Clearwater Christian College there in Clearwater, Florida, I started doing a kind of a small business of selling. um, You got to forgive me, it was back in the early 2000s. So hemp jewelry. So like, uh, you know, the, the beach jewelry that you traditionally see late 90s, early 2000s. And I started a really, you know, small but successful business for me, just doing it on the side um, and paid my college bills. And I would go and I'd sell this this jewelry, essentially. And then from there, I'm like, oh, I have a knack for this. I can easily sell stuff. I'm, I can connect with people. And I enjoyed the kind of uh, bringing products in from overseas, kind of uh, repackaging, marketing, selling, all that stuff. And so my degree, obviously, was in business. And then when I, I got out of school, I also have... Um, a strong love for engineering, um, engineering blood kind of courses through my veins. My grandfather was a, a PhD in engineering, my uncles, my brothers. Um, so I went to Remcal products, um, and kind of tied those two together. So that was an engineering firm, but I also could tie in my marketing background. It was a perfect blend. I was there for six years. It was, it was a good fit. Uh, yeah, it's a really cool way to go about it. Kind of figuring out that you were good at sales. Um, you know, I, I appreciated the hemp mention, you know, I'm somebody that's in drug policy reform and cannabis reform, and I'm, you know, all for destigmatizing the cannabis plant and, you know, the, the remarkable things that you can do with all the materials from hemp, um, are, are pretty incredible. So, uh, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I was, I was walking the line a little bit at that time because it wasn't so, uh, <laughs> it was looked upon differently. In fact, I, I was selling it and I had one person ask me, he's like, do you sell the things that go with it? You know, meaning the, the hemp jewelry. And I, I said, no, I'm just selling the jewelry. And he goes, good answer. And he pulled out his badge and he was a, <laughs> he was an officer trying to check me out. So, um, but yeah, so that was a side trail on that. But yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, no, it's, it's good to hear. And so, you know, you spent, I believe, what, six years in this role? And, um, you know, what, what were your biggest learnings uh, from this experience? Yeah, I mean, for me, it, it built a lot of stuff. So um, in the starting of Worthwhile Wear, there was a lot of things that we did overseas, and we'll probably get into that a little bit. But I learned a lot of um, process development, a lot of, um, you know, structural planning, doing layouts, uh, doing client management, things like that, that really would later translate into how I would grow and start a nonprofit. Um, I also feel for me, I kind of, I think I started to understand a little bit better what my parents were getting at in their decision to leave behind everything, because I had, you know, essentially a career job. I think, you know, our, our, you know, constitution talks about the, 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 um, the right to pursue happiness, right? And I think our culture maybe has um, misinterpreted that um, pursuit of happiness as the pursuit of pleasure. And by that, I mean, just collect, get stuff, pursue any desire that you want with the idea that that'll bring happiness. And so um, this career job was affording me a lot of things. You know, I had a house in Florida. My wife and I, you know, she was able to stay home and raise our two kids. We wanted that, she didn't need to get a job. We had a house in Pennsylvania. 
Um, you know, I, I was one of those guys that at the time was an avid cyclist. So I went out and bought that $5,000 carbon fiber bike. Like, so essentially pursuing all those things. But what this job actually taught me is in, in doing that, you know, the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of pleasure wasn't in things. And so the, the idea that kind of that misinterpretation of the American dream of go out, get lots of money to buy lots of stuff and you'll be happy. I started to feel like this isn't really, this isn't really what was intended or what was meant. And so for me, that big lesson was like, Hey, stuff isn't what gets you happy because I could afford it, but, I, and I had it, but it didn't really bring that, that fulfillment. And so that's essentially what led into this kind of next phase, that next chapter of my life. Got it. And before we dig real deep in that, I saw that while you were, were still in the previous role, you joined the board at Liberty Ministries. And I'd love to to hear, you know, what that organization's about. Yeah, Liberty, that actually was kind of um, also part of this chapter change in, in my narrative um, was because I got invited to be on this board. Um, and then I was, I was young at the time and it was uh, 25, I think, or something around there when I joined it. And then I was the board chair for, for years. And it was an organization that was starting back in the 70s with the whole purpose of kind of reintegrating men coming out of prison into society. So it would provide them with housing and employment and a lot of other wraparound kind of services. And so that was kind of my first window and, and kind of understanding of what a nonprofit would look like here in the U.S. What does it look like to work with individuals that maybe have a history of, you know, imprisonment, but also trauma? Um, there is trauma that's also associated with incarceration. Um, and so what does it look like with how do you address trauma and reintegrate into society? So I served on the board there for six years. Um, most of those years was as the board chair, which, you know, it was, it was an interesting and very good learning experience for me. Um, and that ministry, that organization, you know, being around for decades, um, it was still a good opportunity for me to kind of explore kind of executive director type um, abilities being that I was, I wasn't that, but I was the board chair, I was able to kind of implement some changes that would help ultimately make that organization healthier um, in the long term. That organization's still around today, still doing a lot of great work. Awesome. Awesome. I, I do, you know, a lot of work in criminal justice reform, especially in reentry. And so I was glad to see that, you know, in your history. And it sounds like um, an incredible place to both learn sort of the structure of the nonprofit, but also just what it's like directly impacting lives. I mean, over your, your time there, I'm sure there were just so many men that were helped. Yeah, absolutely. There were, and, and even still happening today. So it's, it's a great type of work that um, has a lot of good, valuable outcomes. So was part of that experience, what sort of led you to leave your role um, in order to help people? It, it was in part, it was that combined with, um, okay. And it, yeah, the, the learning of an issue, right? So I feel like a lot of times we always look at the outcome of something. We, we see this result or see this need, but a lot of times it's, it's an equation that led to that. So it was that experience at, at, at Liberty Ministries plus the experience that I had as a child, seeing how my parents reacted when they saw a need, plus the understanding for me that, that modern day slavery was happening, right? So I wasn't out looking for that. I wasn't out you know, pursuing social justice work, a human rights type um, response to a need. I, I just learned about human trafficking. And when I learned about it, I, I kind of was like, wait, is this like slavery? You know, is this something that's that we we learned about in history class and it's something that's happening still to this day and so as i learned about that i um 
I, for about two years, it wasn't like I'm out of this, you know, job and moving on to this for two years. I really deliberated. What do I do? What's my response now that I'm learning about this issue and, and really understanding the scale of the issue. You know, at the time it was 27 million people enslaved in our world. Now it's at 40 to 45 million people. It was uh, initially it was a $32 billion industry, which is massive already, but now it's, it's estimated about $150 billion industry. Um, you know, learning these horrifying. stats, learning, what was that? It's horrifying. It's horrible. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, for me, it was one of those where I'm like, it, it kind of awakened me to this realization that there's a great need. So I, I came from like having in my roots kind of foundationally experiences from my, my childhood and seeing my parents and growing up at, you know, overseas, but then, you know, from business perspective and, and business side of it, having that, and then kind of that marriage of those two of like, what does it mean to, to, to separate yourself from the pursuit of pleasure to, to pursuit of helping others. And then pairing with that, your, you know, business background, it kind of led naturally, but not easily uh, to the birth of, of our organization worthwhile wear. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's impactful stuff. I mean, your story reminds me of when I was really learning the details of the war on drugs and all the atrocities that accompanied it and all of the disproportionate enforcement. And that really pushed me to get engaged because I, I was kind of privileged to not have been aware of it really before. And I was disgusted by it. And it sounds like a similar situation. And I mean, when you think human trafficking, modern day slavery, it's, it's just such a terrifying thing to think about. And I think there's so many people in our society that don't give it a second thought. So, you know, really appreciate you dedicating your life to, to helping. Yeah. And, and I think it's, you know, it, it's one of those issues, you know, where it, it, it kind of, grabs your heart, you want to respond, but it, it also doesn't lessen the fact that it's hard to make those commitments because, you know, from a career's perspective, you know, career standpoint, it was a bad career move. It was a horrible career move. You know, I went from a, a job that paid well, um, afforded us luxuries to absolutely zero pay. So at the end of the day, though, I think we, you know, and the, the, the goal I would imagine of, of your podcast is that, the answer isn't just by throwing money at something. It takes humans, it takes us people to, to break away, to make some bold decisions, some scary decisions, to make horrible career moves, but ultimately with the understanding that we can make a difference. And so that to us was, you know, for me and my family was like, hey, this is not going to be easy. It's going to be a challenge. And it ultimately was very hard. I mean, we, we sold our homes to, you know, the home in Florida, the home in PA. We used all of our savings, you know, so can you imagine that type of move was not an easy one. It was not one that was met with a lot of uh, endearment and um, acceptance for my wife, you know, trying to sell her on that one. Like, hey, got this horrible business plan on run by you. I mean, but the reality is, though, is and I and I, you know, I, I kind of share too. like I had a different experience growing up. So for me, I kind of had that in my in my back pocket, like I knew what it looked like already. So I got to give my wife a lot of props and credit because she was willing to kind of go along with this, even though it was a very scary and uncertain thing that we were pursuing. Um, but ultimately, I, I felt like the the investment was worthwhile and the, the dividends in the long term would, would be those that are dividends of, of lives changed as opposed to what we see when we invest in the stock market. Um, it, it's a different type of payout that is far, far outweighs um, the, the the, the, the fear and fright of trying to make this change. So that's why we did it. That's kind of what led to it. 
Awesome. Well, um, it's amazing to hear that, you know, how supportive your wife was. I'm sure that that uh, went a really long way in helping you get this off the ground. So, you know, tell us what Worthwhile Wear is and how it started. Yeah. So uh, Worthwhile Wear, you know, it's a standard 501c3 nonprofit, which means first we have to be incorporated. So we truly are a business. I know you, you typically interview business owners, business entrepreneurs. Um, so that's what it starts as. And then it's converted to a, a nonprofit. And so we started um, our work, um, as I alluded to earlier, in India. And the reason we did that is, um, I, as I was first learning about, you know, human trafficking, modern day slavery, I'm looking at it like, what is what is this issue? Number one, how do I get educated so I understand what it is? What are the needs? Where is it uh, a big issue? Where is it predominantly happening? And it was happening in a lot of developing countries. And so um, kind of inroads were starting to happen and doors were opening for India. So we started there. Um, and the reason we um, are called Worthwhile Wear, because a lot of people scratch their heads, that that doesn't sound like a nonprofit. Well, when we looked at the issue of human trafficking as it is and as it relates to developing countries, um, a lot of times trafficking is, is kind of started the, the, the starting point and the perpetuation of it relates to or is tied to economic need. Um, and so in a lot of these developing countries, it's kind of the cultural norm for kids to go out and, and raise funds for the family. Now, traffickers will prey upon that. They'll especially work in the slum areas. And so India, Mumbai and Pune, all those areas on the west coast of India were where we, we started our work. And, and the um, traffickers would promise work at like whatever, a hotel, a restaurant, and focusing on young girls and then force them into the brothels. And we said, well, if we can address the, the root of this issue by providing actual employment, then we can essentially break the cycle and, and disrupt this. Um, and so we we did that with the making of worthwhile wear apparel. Um, so my team's probably gonna get mad if they watch this video because I'm not wearing one of our shirts. I probably should have been. <laughs> but um, we make worthwhile wear clothing. So uh, businesses can go out, right? And, and you can go out and you can promote your podcast and then say, hey, People Are the Answer is an awesome podcast on the front of your shirt. But the shirt was made by Worthwhile Wear, and we have a little hem tag that says, Wear the Story of Freedom. And so businesses can promote their business while also promoting freedom because these shirts are made um, made in India, but empowering women everywhere. And so that's where we started, and then we shifted to the U.S. But I don't want to keep running if you had any questions about the India side. No, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You know, it wasn't something I was too familiar with, but attacking that root cause of of needing work um, is interesting. So can you talk more specifically about, you know, what it was like getting this operation started in India and getting some of these people into actual work? Yeah, it was super, super easy. Um, I'm joking. It was, <laughs> it was a lot of work. It, it took a lot of... Um, from that engineering background, creating a lot of process instructions, working with engineers there, there outfitting a whole uh, building um, to be a sewing center, um, you know, working on design and architects there. So there's a lot of legwork, a lot of groundwork uh, to be being laid to make this happen. And so it was a, a quite a process to get it started. Um, we worked with some agencies that were working with young women that were in high um, um, high risk areas in like the slums. Uh, we worked with an, an organization that worked with um, young girls that had been abandoned by their families. So again, at high risk, others that had been trafficked. So that's kind of where uh, working in partnership there in India was was the only way to make it possible. It was um, it was not an easy process, but it was definitely worthwhile. Um, 
And so we saw that, that, you know, that time committed there to see a, f- a good foundation be laid, uh, pay off. And that's, that's essentially how it started there in India. Did you spend a lot of time in India as you were getting things started? I did. So essentially, um, what it looked like in the beginning is I would just travel back and forth to India because my, um, my wife and kids were here. Um, my wife, you know, had some, some medical issues, so wasn't able to travel uh, as much. So I would go there and work for weeks at a time, get them set up and then come back and kind of work on the U.S. side here. So that's essentially what it looked like. It was a lot of a lot of uh, long distance commuting. Um, and if you've ever flown to India, it is quite a process, too. But um, that's how that's how we kicked it off um, in the beginning. And then you mentioned uh, soon after you started programs in the U.S. What did that entail? What does that look like? Yeah. So, you know, when I shared about, you know, I learned about the issue of human trafficking. I was learning about these large statistics as they related to the world. And a lot of times these statistics would be pointing to an over there issue. Right. And so for me, too, as I was learning about this, I was thinking, OK, gosh, this is, is a horrible thing. But maybe, you know, yourself, myself, your listeners would also think, well, thank goodness, though, it's it's an over there issue. But the reality is I started to understand that it's something that's happening in our communities. And, and that was the impetus, the starting point for understanding like, hey, this is this is requiring and needing of a, a response here in the U.S. I was starting to hear stats like where I live, you know, the average age of a traffic victim was 13 years old. Um, the average life expectancy was only seven years from when they were introduced as a kid to when they would they would pass away seven years later because of a dangerous and violent crime. Um, where I live, you know, on the East Coast, there was a study done by Dr. Anthony Marcus, who went out and surveyed, you know, 372 women that were on the streets, basically um, being prostituted or prostituting themselves in New York City and Atlantic City. And of those 372 262 of them were minors, were kids, right? And another 72 had said that they had started as minors. So nearly all of that, that those women that he surveyed had started as kids or were kids. And so understanding those things, like this is an issue where we live. And so our, our objective was we need to provide a solution. So over the past 10 years, we really focused on developing a very comprehensive and holistic approach to reaching and serving a survivor wherever she's at in her journey. And so today I humbly share, you know, that we offer the most comprehensive services to survivors of trafficking in the state of Pennsylvania. And we do that through a variety of services that we we offer. And so, you know, I, I said the phrase kind of, we want to meet them wherever they're at in their journey. And we do that, you know, by first connecting in the community. We do that through an outreach program. Um, that outreach program is called Worth It kind of says it in the name, the first and foremost, we want these women to know that they're worth it. Um, so this worth it program is a multi-week program. It's, it's a classroom like setting. Um, it's hosted in, in like community centers or churches. And they, they are like the host welcoming the women in. Um, the reason we have it in those type of settings, we want them to connect with healthy people in their communities to build relationship. We then invite service providers from that community to come in and share what services are available to them in their community. So they now have a safety net of of services they can rely on. And then we do a really uh, specifically a deep dive on trauma, understanding what trauma is, identifying where trauma has happened in your life, and then equipping women with tools to address trauma. And and I'm going to pause on that just for a second, because I think so often um, we look at services that are offered to, to individuals in our community um, that are 
that are very good. They're very necessary, but they're oftentimes addressing just kind of the, the surface, the easily seen issue. So right, homelessness or reintegration to society after prison or unemployment or broken families, or other maladaptive behaviors, all these things, right? And, and we address, we put all these band-aids on them and that's, that's good. I'm not saying we shouldn't. However, these same individuals, if you see them in, in some of these programs and, and I, you know, we'll work with them. One of our worth it program uh, programs runs in, in a local prison. And I, and I asked the woman in the prison, I said, how many of you feel like you did really well um, for a period of time? You, you felt like your life was on track. You, you had your addiction under control. You had a house, you're back together, your family. And then you found yourself off track, right? And you, and you went off the rails and every single woman raised their hand. And I said, you know why that possibly is happening is because you have unresolved trauma. And trauma is one of those things that creates kind of like a, a beast, an inner demon that's inside of us that, that is always there to kind of derail you because it is, is a negative voice. It's a, it's a, it's a, a voice that is, is not seeking to help you. And, and so what we try to do is work with survivors to identify that trauma and to silence that trauma as much as they can. It's not something that goes away. Trauma does not um, ever leave us, but you have to learn how to work with and, and work in a way that when you are triggered or something, you can move beyond that. So uh, I just wanted to take a minute and talk about the importance of the work that we do with trauma, because if unaddressed, you see patterns repeat, but if we can address it, you see those patterns um, essentially stalled or stopped and they can move on in a new trajectory. And that's where we start with the women and our Worth It program. Um, we have two more programs to talk about, but I'll pause there for a second. So, so with the Worth It program, what steps do you take to help try to alleviate some of the trauma that these women have experienced? Yeah, uh, I mean, for many of them, uh, first and foremost, they've never addressed the trauma. They never talked about trauma. And so we do a lot of different things. Um, we, um, we have video content curriculum that we provide, but we also, again, bringing in service providers. We help them understand how trauma affects the brain. Um, we don't have time in this podcast. It's been a whole nother podcast talking about trauma in the brain. Um, but there's so much um, for them to understand in that regard. There's also in this um, training or in the Worth It programs, we help them understand the, um, the reality of their situation where they're at. Oftentimes, very often actually, was influenced by an individual meaning them harm. Um, and so a lot of them weren't perceptive to that or understanding of that. And the importance of that is helping to identify the trauma that's happened to them is not because of them, because of their fault and what they've done, but oftentimes it's because of an outside influence as well. And when you have an understanding that you didn't inflict trauma on yourself, uh, you were oftentimes trauma was inflicted by another party looking to gain or benefit from the, tr the trauma, you know, from the, the trafficking or whatever they did to that individual, it gives a person a measure of grace. It gives them an opportunity to start to pause, reflect, and begin to heal. And so those are just a few of the elements. We also work on the, uh, the importance of counseling. What does counseling look like? A lot of them have never experienced what, a, you know, counseling sounds kind of obscure, or maybe it's scary, or maybe, you know, there's a stigma associated with um, we do that. We also introduce them to law enforcement. So we bring law enforcement. And so we bring in FBI agents, detectives, local law enforcement, because we want them to break down those barriers, because a lot of times they have a, a valid reason why they don't like law enforcement. And some of these women will share stories um, that is very eye opening uh, and why they have that fear or that that um, anger towards them. And what it allows is a healthy dialogue. 
Um, and so we, we want the woman to experience is it doesn't mean that because you've had one bad experience that all experiences will be bad. And it helps them understand that they need to um, broaden their, their view a little bit. Um, and so it's also great because these detectives, these, these FBI agents, they come in and they say, we just want to hear you. We see you as a human. So tell us what happened and what can we do to help you? And, and Jeff, this is one of the most profound days is when we do the law enforcement day in our Worth It program, because usually the day or two before, the woman will say to us, I, I can't come in that day, I'm going to be sick, right? I, I don't want to come in. And, and I get it, right? So they give all these excuses. And then at the end of that day, every single time they say that was the most powerful day. And the reason why is they said, I felt like I was heard. And I was able to share what happened to me, to another officer who wasn't looking to arrest me. And so it just starts to break down those walls and those barriers and helps that dialogue. And that also is part of that trauma. And so that's a lot of that work and that Worth It program is so focused on that trauma piece that we can help them grow past. And again, it's kind of switch tracks as opposed to repeating everything, breaking that cycle of repetition and moving on to healing for that long term. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a, a really powerful experience, both for uh, the survivors as well as for the law enforcement. Um, I'm sure that at all of the law enforcement that participates, I'm sure that when they come upon situations that might involve people who have been trafficked, they're going to be so much more aware of what kind of state these people could be in, I would think. Yeah, yeah. And our, our local um, district attorney, I, I live in Bucks County, which is just outside of Philadelphia. You know, he's come out and, and just kind of came to share like, hey, I, I want these women to see me to see that I, I don't see them as, you know, bad people or as criminals. Like I'm here because I, I value them. And so that, again, speaks volumes to these women that have a, a lifetime of trauma, a lifetime of being told they're less than, don't have value, being mistreated by a variety of people, right? And have that opportunity from someone who's, uh, you know, higher up in the kind of the, the in, in prosecution and law and, and that seeing the DA come in and just say, hey, I'm here because I value you. It, it makes, you know, a world of change in these women's lives. You mentioned being able to facilitate counseling. Um, is that through, do you have a team of counselors? Do you use community resources? How does that work? Yeah, so we, we use uh, actually community resources. We also contract some counselors. So we have a variety of approaches to that. Um, the community resources are oftentimes ones that we partner with through our Worth It program. Um, and they, they continue to offer those services to women that have enrolled in the Worth It program. Um, and then the other con um, contracted counselors um, also provide consultation to our administrative team to make sure that the services we're offering are aligning with the needs of the women that they're counseling. So um, when we talk about offering um, good and comprehensive services, it's one thing to offer a lot of services. It's another thing to offer services that are distilled and directed um, to the needs of a survivor based off of their feedback. That's what we look to do. So when you are trying to help someone, you're not saying this is what I think you need. This is this, instead it's this is what you've said you need. And we're going to provide solutions to that. Um, so that's how we approach it with the counseling side. Got it. And you told us about the Worth It program. I'd love to hear about some of the other programs. I know you and I spoke previously about um, the thrift side of, of your business, the boutique side. And I'd love to hear some more about those. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's ironic. You're you're used to talking to these business owners and entrepreneurs. Well, we're getting there. We're getting there. So we we wrap it all together. We wrap social justice, human rights, you know, services. So we we offer the outreach program, uh, connect with women wherever they're at in their journey in the community. We also offer long term housing. We do that through a program called the Well, 
And the wells, uh, we have kind of two parts to it. First part, when they first join us at the housing program, um, it is on a beautiful 82 acre property just outside of Philadelphia. Um, and that's where we first start working with them to, um, again, work more on trauma. Uh, many times they come to us, uh, nearly every woman comes to us with uh, significant medical needs because trauma affects the body. So we address those. They come to us without documentation, no birth certificate, no social security, no, no any type of documents. We work on getting that. We get them set up with Medicare, get them set up with all these different services. Um, so we call that really foundation building. So we are pouring a foundation that they'll be able to springboard from and build on in the future. And so we offer that in the first part of, of the well program. And then we also have graduated housing, which is offsite at another location. We have apartments. And um, that gives women a chance to, as they progress through our program, um, practice living before they fully graduate. So that's such a valuable thing. We've seen so many women benefit from that. Um, and so that's what our housing program looks like, the well. And then lastly, what you were just alluding to is we saw also the benefit. And when we created these programs, we really did it intentionally to, to work together, to be blended together. Um, you know, we say it's great if we can offer housing to someone, but if someone graduates from a housing program and they, they have no job training, they have no employable skills or, or employment experience, you're, you're essentially doing them a disservice because they don't know how to generate income, right? They don't have that experience. So a lot of times that can be the roadblock, that can be the, the tripping stone to fall back, you know, and recidivism happens because they don't know how to support themselves. So we are often, um, you know, working with women that have never had a job or not had a traditional job as we're used to. And so we are fortunate that we can offer them employment through our worthwhile thrift stores. Um, a lot of people get an image in their head when they think and hear the word thrift. Um, I want to, I want to take that off the table because our stores are awesome. Um, they're, they're amazing looking They're They're kick-ass. I'm sorry if I can't say that because they look so they look, they look awesome, right? And it's not just that they look awesome. It's our community understands that these stores are synonymous with supporting survivors of sexual exploitation and trafficking. And they, and they know that because when they walk into these stores, the messaging is clear. Um, our, our newest store, we just celebrated one year anniversary last week. Um, it was formerly a Sears. Um, so it gives you a size, of, a scope of size, you know, of the stores. They're large. And you go in and, and across the back wall is a 130 foot long mural that essentially is, is, is quotes um, painted on the wall. And these quotes are from women that have gone through our programs. And these are words of, of empowerment, words of encouragement. And, and what we want people to know is um, when you walk into our stores and they read that, they're like, what is that? And so well, these are women that are in your community that have come out of a life of, of um, trafficking, and with that, wrapped in with that is maybe um, addiction or, or homelessness. And these are what they're saying today. And we share with the women too, like, you know, I think it's almost cliche. We often say, we want your voice to be heard. We say, well, quite literally, we want your voice to be seen. And so um, we have these stores that really carry that message forward to our community. And it also is um, helping our community um, have a way to, to give back, to be involved. And then most importantly, it allows us to provide that employment piece to the women in our program because so so many times um, it, it's the first job that they've had. Um, that excitement when they get their first paycheck is is phenomenal. Getting to see that, uh, and also they make mistakes, right? A lot of times we say, "Hey, you're going to make mistakes. Make them with us." You know, we have a trauma informed team. They're going to work with you. Um, 
I had one woman come barge into my office and said, started yelling at me, saying, you're stealing from me. And I said, oh, pause, time out. I said, let's just say if you did that in the real world, you'd probably be fired right now. And she like had this look on her face. I was like, okay, so life lesson. Let's chalk it up to a life lesson. Let's start over. What did you want to say? She goes, I'm sorry. She's like, I just want to know why money's coming out of my check. And I said, okay, let me look at your check. She showed it to me. I said, those are taxes. It feels like you're being stolen from, but those are taxes. And so that was a really good life lesson, a good experience for her. And it's those type of things that we get to do along with just teaching them a lot of employable skills that then springboard them onto other career type jobs with livable wages and benefits and things along those lines. Yeah. I mean, what a powerful element to be able to offer that employment opportunity. Um, and, and I think, you know, you mentioned sort of some stigma around thrifting, but I'd say that, you know, it's really the, the interest in it has picked up, I feel like over the, the last few years uh, in general as a concept and what a great way to go about it with what you guys are doing. And, um, you know, I'm curious, how many stores do you have? Well, we, we took a bit of a hit with COVID. Uh, we shut a couple down. Um, and so we're in the rebuilding right now. So we have we, we scaled all the way back to two locally. Um, and now we're in the process of launching some in some other states, other locations, and some more locally. So um, it's, been a, it's been a rebuilding process um, as of in the past six months. Um, it's the reality of, you know, when you're faced with a, a world pandemic, uh, what do you need to, you know, how do you, how do you address that? So we ended up closing stores down. Um, and then now we're, we're relaunching. But um, that's, that's also exciting, too, because we're able to kind of really, um, with the, the two that we're on now operating, um, really distill out what, is the things, what are the things that work really well, what is it that we can do better. And then we're also um, rolling this out to um, other locations, so um, allowing us to take a kind of a, a magnifying glass view of these uh, processes and stores is allowing us to set up um, for, you know, bigger success, long-term success in other areas. Retail's tough enough as it is. So yeah, obviously you throw a pandemic into the mix. And, um, but I, I like that you are able to spend this time focusing initially on these existing locations and really getting the formula down how you want it before, you know, larger growth that it seems like is starting to happen. If you're enjoying this episode, I would greatly appreciate it if you could review, like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platforms. Your engaged support goes a long way in helping the show grow and getting our impactful guests heard. Now back to the show. Um, and also, you know, we've, it's come up a few times, like the whole business versus nonprofit. And for me, I, I've talked about it in a lot of episodes. Um, you know, I think that the, the distinction is too rigid right now in our sort of society between businesses and nonprofits. I think the most important thing is creating a sustainable organization. And so by you, you know, building this impact organization with business elements around it and an ability to bring in some revenue, um, you know, it's, it's awesome how that can fuel the efforts. Uh, so I really appreciate that aspect of what you're doing. Yeah, and that's that's in part what's led us to kind of our three-year strategic plan going out is um, seeing seeing um, the power of the programs that we've created and some of the models that we've created within Worthwhile Wear as an organization. Um, you know, I, I go back to like when I started Worthwhile Wear, I first got educated, like what does the issue of human trafficking look like? And now I find myself, you know, 11 years in, I'm getting re-educated, but more on if we want to serve more women, how do we do that effectively? And the answer to that is not doing it by yourself, right? So it's done in partnerships. So my, my re-education has been talking to other organizations around the country 
Um, there are there are other housing programs like our program, The Well, and they operate as an independent, you know, nonprofit running a housing program. And when we talk to them, I, I ask the question, like, what is it? What are areas of need? Like, what are things that you find are your biggest roadblocks or hurdles? And the entrepreneurial brain in me starts going when I hear their answers, because the first thing this is, well, we have a hard time connecting with women in our community. So my response to that is, well, worth it sounds like a good solution because worth it acts as a channel and a conduit for women to enter the housing program. And the other thing I hear them say is, you know, we, we, you know, have these candle making programs where we make some jewelry um, to provide some employment training, but max we can give like four hours a week to the women. Um, that's one problem. Another problem is we don't have any way to, you know, generate revenue. We just have to rely on our donors. And I'm like, okay, entrepreneurial mind kicks in. Well, it sounds like a thrift worthwhile thrift network franchise type thing would be beneficial. And so our three year strategic plan is, is we've been working on developing out both the worth it model to be a program that's offered for free to any organization that works with survivors of sexual exploitation and trafficking. It allows them to connect with women in their community and provide resources to them. It allows that organization to make an impact beyond just their housing program. And so we are in the process of, of launching that and growing that um, with already have some, um, you know, guinea pig organizations that have been running our Worth It program remotely. Um, and so that's one thing we're excited for. And then the other is that that Worth It, um, the, sorry, the Worthwhile Thrift is growing that out. And so um, we locally have several um, sites, you know, building locations that we're looking at. But then we also have other organizations, one in Colorado, one in uh, Texas and some other locations that are saying, hey, we're interested in this because they're, they're you know, out of their mouths. They say we don't have the bandwidth to try and figure this out, how to kick off something of that scale and that size. And that's where we're saying, hey, you can join this worthwhile thrift network, a network, a brand, a, 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 you know, a retail franchise that's synonymous with su supporting survivors of sexual exploitation and trafficking. And, and knowing that there's mission behind it um, is what drives that that customer base. And so there's a lot of interest in that. So those are kind of looking ahead where we're going with what we've seen, the impact on our side. We're looking to help reach more women through growing those those programs. Yeah. What a great idea to be able to provide those tools and to other organizations and utilize all the effort that you guys have put into it while being able to create impact um, on a wider scale. Uh, so I really appreciate that. And, um, you know, you've, we've talked about, you, you've built these, these different revenue streams and I'm curious, uh, you know, if you have the number off the top of your head, what your funding, what portion of it comes from revenue versus donors? Yeah, it's actually split pretty much, uh, 50, 50. Um, you know, we, we have a, a good size budget and revenue stream. Um, but our donors, um, you know, they're driven by the mission. And so they, they, you know, generously donate because what I think they've seen and what we've demonstrated over the years is we're a good running machine, a good running engine, right? If you want to take that visual picture of an engine running, that engine will keep going. It can go far as long as it has the fuel, right? So we generate our own fuel and which is kind of unique to us as an organization. But when we have donors saying, Hey, I want to also add fuel, we can go so much further. And so that's kind of where we're going. We're saying, you know, our board of directors, we're looking at this like we have generous donors. We have um, we have our own revenue. Let's take that and and point it towards reaching more women, not just in Pennsylvania, but wherever they're at in the country. And so that's what we've already um, started that process on. And, um, you know, we, we we are so grateful to our generous donors in our community. And those donors aren't just individuals. 
you know, their businesses, their, their foundations, their organizations, their churches that are saying, Hey, we see the value in what you're doing. We see the value in the women you're serving. And so we make that messaging very clear and, and help people understand, like when you invest in worthwhile wear, it's not us as an organization, you're investing directly into those women's lives that we're serving. Yeah. It's definitely a, a powerful sort of advertisement, if you will, for being a donor. There's, you guys are doing great work that directly impacts um, the people that are involved in these issues. And I also read uh, about the ACT Challenge that you guys are part of. Can you tell us more about that? Oh, man. Jeff, I knew I liked you. You're, you're, you're putting this, you're teeing me up here. So, you know, what, one of the things we focus on is as an organization, I, I love this. We had, we had a marketing company that did a full deep analysis of us as an organization. And they said, you know, their assessment, they came back to us and they said, we, we see you and want to describe you as a house with many doors. And I said, what, what the heck's that mean? Um, and they said, what that means is that if people want to get involved, you have a lot of doors, a lot of avenues for them to get involved. And then I was like, okay, I like that analogy at first. I didn't get it, but now I like it. And so I, I share that to say is that we often look to engage with organizations, with volunteers and people to get involved. And um, a lot of times people are like, well, I don't know, you know, you, you're not near me. You know, we have, um, we have, you know, a lot of businesses in the greater Philadelphia area and we have these worth it's running in other areas as well, but people might not be adjacent to them. So we said, well, how can we engage our community at large? And a lot of times when people, myself included, you hear about an issue like human trafficking and you hear how people are being abused and mistreated, you want to act, right? And so we kind of took a play on that word and made it an act challenge. Like if you want to act, then let's challenge you to act. And so um, what we do is we, we have this challenge every year. It's a national challenge. Um, we may have to change it to international because every year we have a lot of people from overseas submitting um, their, their things for the act challenge. And essentially we tell people... Um, We've done the heavy lifting. Worthwhile Wear has already gotten the sponsorship pledges. So we get sponsorship pledges from large companies all around the, the country. We're still looking for more. Put that plug in there. Um, and then the community is, is asked to help us unlock those pledges. And so from May 1st to July 30th, the Act Challenge runs every year. And we end on July 30th. People always ask, well, there's 31 days in July. Why July 30th? Well, July 30th is World Day Against Trafficking. So we end on that day specifically to draw that awareness. And so what we love is I just saw a post, one of our posts on social media yesterday. Uh, there's a gentleman that's riding. He's already logged almost 1,000 miles. I think it was like 973 miles. And he's like, what I love about this challenge is while I'm doing, I'm raising awareness everywhere I go. And um, for, for those listening, you won't be to see it, but we have this, this postcard that has information. We, we mail these out by the tens of thousands all over the country to different organizations, different people that want to promote this because it's a conversation starter. If you have a neighbor that's always walking their dog, just hand them a postcard. Say, hey, you know, learn about this act challenge because every mile you log is a dollar donated, a dollar unlocked from our sponsors. And you can do that through walking, through running, through swimming, through kayaking rollerblading. You look like a rollerblader, Jeff. Um, you know, it could be any one of those. And so um, it's just encouraging people to you know, put activity to this challenge, kind of playing on that word. They hear about trafficking, they want to act. And um, our goal this year is 100,000 miles, um, which translated to $100,000. Um, we are well, uh, uh, you know, ahead of pace and uh, are, we are, um, you know, getting a lot of participation from all over the country. The West Coast does a lot. The East Coast does a lot. The Midwest, um, 
they got to get off the tractors and start or start running. I don't know, but there's there's a lot of people all over uh, getting involved, and we love it. And what I love most about it is right, it's it's raising awareness, but it also raises awareness with the most key demographic. Um, we have schools that will dismiss their full assembly. And these kids will learn a little bit in a, in a safe, tangible way, kind of like a palatable way of what trafficking is or exploitation. And then they dismiss the whole school's dismissed and they go and they walk around their school laps until they get to a half mile or to a mile. And then all these kids know that they're giving back, that they've helped contribute. They've unlocked these dollars that go towards housing and outreach to survivors. And they've also been educated a bit on this issue of trafficking. And, and that's, you know, the beauty of it. We get these schools, they'll submit all these names from all these kids. And I love it because they're, they're, you know, seeing the value, you know, the, what we're doing and these kids are feeling that they can give back. And we have on our website, you know, if you go to worthwhileware.org, it's first page you land on, it'll point you to the act challenge. Um, we have like a media kit in there. We actually have a video that was created. It's kind of like an eight bit video game video um, that's geared towards schools that can share it. It's kind of like a non-threatening fun way to learn about how they can give back. And so we really want to see our, our community at large give back. And, um, you know, I, I, we set a goal at 100,000 miles. We knew we'd hit that pretty easily. I'd love to see a million miles. You know, I'd love to see our community step up and do far more um, because what it's demonstrating to the women that we serve is that our community at large sees them as valuable, sees them as worthwhile. Yeah, no, that it sounds like an incredible program. And you mentioned, you know, people want to act that when they hear about these atrocities going on, they want to do something. And, you know, I was going to ask you, what can everyday people do to combat human trafficking? And, and obviously, uh, participating in things like the act challenge, uh, donating to worthwhile where those are ways, are there other ways that everyday people can help combat this issue? Yeah, I think, um, the, those, the ones you mentioned are great ones. You know, we, we, in trying to spread awareness, um, we um, will have, it's not on our website. Well, it'd probably be on the website shortly um, is um, on our resource page is um, a new video that we're, we're putting up. It's um, trauma, the demon within is what it's called. And it's kind of just, it's a one, one and a half minute video that raises awareness. It's a video that's going to be played at um, film festivals across the country to help people understand how trauma um, affects individuals. Because a lot of times when we talk about trauma, um, we see an individual that maybe has needs of sorts that we can see with our eyes, right? And, and maybe we see someone like they look normal, they look fine, right? And they don't understand the effect that trauma has. And I kind of referenced that earlier on in the podcast about how that is kind of creates that inner demon, right? And how it's seeking to tear us down. And so this, this is a video, it's, um, you know, an ed educational kind of piece, but it's really powerful and uh, how it can tell a story in 90 seconds, um, of what it looks like, but how it can also be overcome. And in the end of this video, it's, it's a mirror that's covered in post-it notes of, of words of affirmation. And these are actual quotes from women that have gone through our programs. And so I'd say when people are like, how can I get educated or what can I do? Um, raise awareness, um, utilize our resource page. There's information, stats, books to read, but also that video will be on there. Um, and spread the word because this is only responded to and only addressed when we work as a community. And I mean that I don't mean it sound cliche, but we love to engage um, the community. We see people on the sidelines that are saying, how do I get involved? And we're like, hey, join with us, get in here with us and be part of this. Um, I think last week we had a volunteer group. Um, their CEO flew in from North Carolina 
to get get his hands dirty with his team. And I love that. I'm like, hey, guys, more organizations need to be like you that are willing to come together and volunteer. And so we, we, we work with groups of all sizes that are local to the greater Philadelphia area. But then we're also engaging the community through <coughs> the ACT Challenge, through awareness campaigns. Um, so reach out if you're like, hey, how do we get involved? And I do speaking engagements. So I go and I travel and speak at different places um, around the country, around the world. Um, to, to educate people on, on trauma in the brain, on, on, on human trafficking, and then also leave with the message of hope that change can happen, healing can happen, and action. This is what you can do where you are to help survivors. So um, those are ways that people can get involved. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'll make sure to include the links and everything in the show notes. Um, you've built a really, really awesome organization doing incredible work. And, you know, you mentioned sort of the three-year plan, but what do you envision for the long-term future of the org? Man, I, I, I would love, um, I think kind of the, the simple answer to that is like, what is the, you know, your, your vision? It's, it's just to always reach and serve more women um, that have been exploited, that have been told they, they have no value to let them know that they have value. So that's like kind of the, the, the simple answer. It doesn't give you the details, but what I would envision though, is I would love, I love worthwhile thrift to be a synonymous name with, uh, you know, organizations and individuals that are running their own store that's synonymous with supporting survivors. I'd love to see a network that reaches from East coast to West coast. And so that's something I'd love, you know, people are interested. We have flyers and information that we can share and send out to maybe your listeners like, Hey, I'd be interested in opening my own store. Um, because obviously it can pay your own bills and you can make money doing it, but it's going back to supporting the community. I'd love, I'd love for our worth of program to be one that's synonymous across the country that's um, serving survivors, helping them address trauma, helping them connect to resources and helping them build healthy relationships in their community. Those are three key things that equal a better outcome. And so those are what we're hoping for and seeing those things grow uh, in, the, in, in the long term. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck with that and um, certainly look forward to, to seeing you guys grow. And um, your work has affected the lives of so many people. You know, is there any particular story of when you just saw directly how much your work could affect change or affect an individual? Yeah, um, it's funny you ask that because that, that literally just happened. Um, I and it wasn't I didn't see it with my eyes, but I heard it with my ears and, and I will see it with my eyes sh shortly. And, and what I mean by that is I was sitting where I'm sitting now. The end of the week was a Friday, five o'clock at night. My phone rang and I saw who it was. It was one of our past graduates. And um, I answered the phone. I'm like, hey, what's up? And, and she's like, hey, I just wanted to call and was thinking about you. I wanted to say, you know, this this work that your organization is. And she's saying, you know, worthwhile work saved my life. And, and she's like, I, I want you to know, I was at 17 other programs before I came to yours and it, and it changed my life. It helped with my addiction, helped me with addressing, you know, all these other things. And also more importantly, addressing that trauma. And then the thing that stuck with me that she said is, I want to, I want to come back to the well, our housing program. And she's like, I don't want to come back as a participant. I want to come back to help encourage the women that are there to let them know, I know it can be hard but this can change your life. And for me, I said to her, I said, you know how proud this makes me to hear you seeing the value of investing back in people. And I've said it a couple of times, right? I said the, the dividends it pays, it doesn't pay monetarily, but it pays dividends and seeing lives change. And she now gets it, right? And to me, that was the impact to hear her tell her story and say, this changed my life, this saved my life. And I want to give back as a thank you. 
And I told her, I said, that to me shows immense amounts of maturity and understanding that people, you know, are the answer when you take time to invest back in them. And so to me, that was such a pivotal thing. And that, that just happened. There's so many other stories I could share, but that was the one that's kind of fresh in my mind. Um, and actually, right before our, our, you know, our podcast, I just emailed our team there at the well and connected her to them and said, hey, guys, she wants to do this. Let's get her there. She wants to kind of encourage women that are in the program. So that's what it looks like. That's, that's what we're seeing. Yeah, that, that's awesome. It always says a lot about an organization when people that have been helped by the organization come back to volunteer and to work with it. Uh, some of my favorite orgs that I work with, you know, that's the case. And it just, it really says a lot about the true good that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So throughout this process and throughout your career, has there been anyone in particular that's been an impactful mentor for you? You know, I think for me, I, I'm not afraid to ask questions. And so I've had, um, I would say probably a couple mentors. Um, one of those mentors uh, is one that uh, I don't probably talk to him as much as I should, um, but we've grown over the years. But when we first were starting, um, his name's Jay Desco. He runs a, he runs a consulting organization for for other businesses, for nonprofits. And I remember when I first sat down before I even left my job, I kind of laid it out on the table. And I said, listen, Jay, I'm ready to quit my job to do this. It's stupid, right? And he's like, yeah, but he's like, it sounds like you have good plans and you you have a good way to, to lay this out, to tie business with nonprofit, to generate revenue, to support yourselves. And so um, over the years, I've kind of, I've gone back to him with questions and, and I see the, the power in that too, of, of having, you know, an individual that you can go back to that has years ahead of you, has experience. Um, and can pour that experience back into someone else um, that's looking to do good. And so I, I, I appreciated that. I appreciated Jay and, and his guidance over the years. Um, his uh, his uh, organization is called The Center, and they are, have amazing material and content for businesses and organizations looking to how do you get the best hire? How do you manage teams? Like all these great things. So um, I couldn't recommend them enough. Awesome. It's, uh, it's always good to hear, you know, how people helped people get where they are. Um, and if you'd like, you can ask me a question now. I have a question I ask every person I meet. So you're going to get the same question and it, it sounds maybe silly, but I think it, it helps me get to know someone. And, um, I think our default, especially maybe, maybe it's a guy thing. I don't know. I'm a guy. That's what I know. <laughs> but I, I feel like most guys I run into, they ask a question like, what do you do for work? And that's okay. But I like to instead ask, what do you do that recharges you or that you find, find, you, you find enjoyment in um, that's different than work, not adjacent to work? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great question. And, um, and just to sort of preface that, you know, you mentioned people asking, like, what do you do? And so I often I'll try to ask, like, what are you passionate about? You know, because some people that's the one and the same for what they work on. But for probably most people, it's not. Uh, so yeah, I really appreciate the question. Um, for me, there's probably a few things I could answer, you know, certainly spending time with my family is recharging, but, uh, I, I play ice hockey. Um, you know, I have since, uh, since I was a kid and, um, it's a really important part of my life. And, um, you know, I took, there was about a decade where I was only playing like once or twice a year for, for various reasons. And then when my, my first son was born, um, I just, you know, I had an itch to get back involved. You know, I want him to see me playing. Hopefully he'll be interested. You know, if not, I'm not going to force him, but, um, I've started playing a few times a week, um, over the last like 
two years or so. And it's just been, uh, it's been awesome. It's, um, it's an opportunity to sort of escape, you know, and you're just out there in the moment on the ice. And, um, I actually, uh, shot a movie in the fall, um, about one night at a men's league hockey game. And, you know, part of the message in there is like, this is an opportunity to escape where it feels like it's the only place in the world, you know, in those moments. And so, uh, you know, playing hockey has done playing hockey and being a fan of hockey has done a lot for me in my life. It's a game that I, you know, like to give back to. And, um, I'd say it's certainly, uh, a recharging experience. Yeah. That's awesome, man. That's, that's a rarity. The fact that what you said is I can do it and it takes you, you can't think of anything else, but that that's a great thing. Your brain needs those moments to break away. And also I'd imagine it's a good way to connect with some other men. I think guys were not typically the most sociable, um, and so it's a good way to, to connect with some other guys. So that that's a great outlet. Plus, it's it's you're you're getting some exercise in, man. You're like checking all the boxes on that one. I, it's definitely my favorite way, my favorite way to exercise. Um, and in terms of like socializing, yeah, that's that's definitely a, a good part of it. And um, you know, some of the I'm on a couple different teams, and like some of them, you know, it's such a slow process. I feel like when guys get to know each other, but like you know, I've been playing with the same guys two or three years, and then we like finally get to know each other a little bit sometimes. Um, but also in the movie, uh, it's called the late game. Hopefully it'll be out, you know, this year or next, uh, part of it is just sort of the difficulty of making friends as an adult, um, and sort of shining a light on that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, hockey provides so many of these things. And you mentioned also the escape factor. And for me, my, I know a lot of people are like this, my brain's just always going. And so just being able to have something where like, you pretty much have to be in the moment when you're playing. That's awesome. I was the uh, the token American on my Ukrainian hockey team. <laughs> I, I, I played with these. In oh, Ukraine. that's awesome! The hockey team. It was the Ukrainian and Russian kids. You know, they grew up they grew up under Soviet Union, and so they let me on the team because they thought it'd be cool to have an American. And I was not nearly as good as these kids, so I'd play all the practices. And I didn't play one game. <laughs> I wasn't good enough. Couldn't keep up with them, but there was fun. There's some great hockey over there, so understandable, but uh, always fun to be on the ice. And uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for that question. And you know, it, whatever this means to you, if everything were to end tomorrow, what are you most proud of or grateful for? Yeah, that's a that's a little bit of a loaded question because I think there's there's different categories of of my life. Like so, family wise, proud of my family. I've you know, uh, my two kids, my wife, my 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 son's sixteen, my daughter's twelve. Um, and I'm, I'm just proud that I can be a dad, that I can help um, instruct them. I, I got my, my son up at 5.45 a.m. Uh, yesterday to take him to breakfast. He wasn't thrilled with that. But at the end of breakfast, he was, he was, he was laughing and we were, you know, grown as, as, uh, you know, as a parent and a kid should. Um, so I'm proud of that. And that's something I think is, is good. And, um, you know, I think, I think the work too, you know, I think I love that we can draw in people you know, um, this work is impacting lives and that's, that's primary, that's our primary focus. Right. But I think the other thing that's interesting and that I, I love is that we, you know, each year we reach, um, and have interaction with about 120 to 175,000 people through our, our, our national challenges, through our stores, through speaking engagements. And I love that we, at every one of those opportunities, we engage them also with the option to be involved. And I think that's so important. It's like people don't have to be on the sidelines, right? They can be part of this. And I love that we can do that. We can incorporate um, people. We can be that 
house with many doors, right? You can enter in through a variety of different ways and get involved. So those would be kind of those two things. I know you asked for one, but my family. And no, no, that's perfect. Age. You'll forgive me. Thanks. <laughs> no, you, you always got to throw family in there for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm going a little backwards with this question, but it just came to mind. So, you know, human trafficking, you talked about tackling the root cause in some of these markets in terms of uh, having work available, but is human trafficking statistically going up or down? And, you know, what else can we do to just try to make this go away? You know, anytime that there's monetary monetary incentive behind something terrible like this, there's always someone that's going to do it. So what, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you pointed to the, you know, the fact of the situation is that, um, it, it's, it's an issue that's, it's growing. Um, and the reason why is because there's demand and, um, you know, criminals are also kind of converting over to trafficking in the sense that, you know, when you go to traffic a weapon or traffic drugs, right, you have to restock your inventory. Um, but if you can get something through coercion and manipulation, something that you don't have to buy, it's something that you don't have to restock because you can sell it multiple times. Well, then there's a lot of upside to that. And so we're seeing criminals kind of making that shift. And sadly, that's why we're seeing a growth in this. And it's also driven, though, by demand. Right. So if we can curb the demand, then we can help eliminate the the the, the issue. And so. <clears throat> A lot of what we try and do is help help men, especially because we're the driving factor uh, more so than women uh, for the demand. And so helping educate on that and helping speak pointedly to men. And so we, we've held events over the years that are, are geared towards men coming out and learning about the issue to raise awareness. And it's something that, uh, you know, Jeff, I wish I had a better answer for. I'm trying to uh, like, again, my, my mind goes to how do I how do I stop this from growing? Uh, how do we turn it backwards? And. And I, I think awareness is one of those education, but those aren't the only things. And there's other things that we're trying to do. I mean, um, but we need the, the community at large to, to continue to help us in that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm, you know, I'm going a little off the wall here. So, you know, if you, if you don't want to, uh, you know, answer this question, feel free, but I'm going to go for it. Um, so you talked about all the different things that we can do to try to alleviate human trafficking and that demand is a big part of it. Do you think that, part of a potential solution is legal regulated sex work? Yeah, that's, that's a good question and a topic that's, that's talked about a lot. Um, I think the, the reality is that it's, it's, um, I understand the intentions of it. Right. And I think the intent is to help curb the driving of trafficking. Right. But there's, there's also the understanding of the reality of the situation. So being in this field of work for 11 years, I've worked with, sex workers, those that promote, you know, it as sex work. And I've talked to them and I, and I, my heart is always the same. It's like, listen, I want, I want the best for you as an individual. I want the best for the, the, the people as a whole that are involved in this. And the reality is when you talk to the whole, right, when work we've done for 11 years is we've worked with a lot of survivors of trafficking and the common um, response back is sex, um, selling yourself for sex is rarely edifying, rarely builds you up. And I know that maybe doesn't sound popular to some, but they also, the other side of it too is, and I've worked with those in sex work. I said, you know, have you um, talked to others that are in this field? And do you feel it would be um, 
you know, get, get their responses and their responses. No, we haven't. So we haven't done a big survey. So there's that side of it. Then the other side of it is if you legalize something, right, it doesn't necessarily mean it goes away. So we'll talk about marijuana, right? So legalization of marijuana uh, has led to the increase of use of marijuana. And that's, that's an inanimate object, right? So if you produce more and get more, okay. If you're talking about the, the legalization of, a, of an item or, or of, a, of a product like sex, that's not an item that's being sold. That's a person. And so that's where I kind of draw the line and I have an issue with that because people are not interchangeable with items. And I think that's what we try to do when we talk about legalizing sex work, because the outcome will be, if you legalize sex work, is that you will have those that are, as you would in, in, in production of marijuana, the, the farmer, right, producing a lot of it. Think about it in the same regard as legalization of sex work. You would have a trafficker looking to get more of his product out on the street. Right. It's not going to simply put people in charge of their own um, uh, their own situations and have have the agency to make those decisions. They're going to have more manipulation. Um, and that, again, is is um, I, I've recognized that through the discussions I've had with survivors that um, in areas where it's more permissible or it's not um, taken off the streets as much. There's a, a lot of a lot more exploitation is happening because traffickers will bring women to those areas. Um, and so that's that's the danger in that in that side of it. Um, and I think you every time you you make a decision, there is going to be a, a cost, right? Everything every time you have a decision, there's there's a, an outcome. Uh, and a lot of times you have to really think long and hard and and, and speak with those that have experience. It goes back to get educated. Um, and I see the importance of that in this topic as well, um, because you could very quickly see a spike in trafficking if you were to legalize sex work and that's what my my fear is and that's i believe is the reality of what would happen and and i think i appreciate you going into that depth and i think that that fear is certainly warranted you know it, this is probably a discussion we could have for hours um but you know i i wonder if there are the right regulations somewhere out there that would make it you know, a personal decision, you know, for, for someone, um, and try to keep some of the sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just some of the horrible people out of it. But obviously anytime there's money involved, people will find their ways. Um, so there's, you know, a million ways that could go. Yeah. All right. And so back to sort of more the zoomed out type of questions. Uh, this is the, the one I ask everybody that comes on the show. Uh, if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate? Well, I think I'm going to, I'm going to tie back to the question. We, the, the topic we just were talking about is, you know, um, legalizing sex. And I said, it's a person, not a product, right? Not interchanging. And it goes back to what would be that one thing I could change if I could snap my finger, I would say it'd be a change of people's priorities or a change in people's perspective. More simply put, let me put a quote like this, love people, use stuff, and never confuse the two, right? So if we love people and we use stuff, we're okay. But as soon as we start using people and loving stuff, that's where we start to have problems. And that goes back to that, that question. I think that's part of my concern is when we say, well, let's just legalize it. Well, you're using people as if they're stuff and you're, you're, loving, you're loving the product of sex, right? And so I think that's where I, I would love to see that if I could change people's perspective, 
and change that one mindset of let's love people and use stuff and never confuse the two. That's where I think it would have a, a, an impact, a, a re, would reverberate across the world and people not pursuing self, not pursuing pleasure, but investing in others. And when you do that, you will find true happiness yourself, which sounds counterintuitive, and you will see lives change. So it's a two-fold dividend, dividend that's paid out. And that's what I love, would love to see people do is having that change and shift in perspective and mindset. Yeah, no, that's, that's very astute. And the idea of using stuff and, and not loving it and, you know, loving people. I really, really appreciate that. Um, thank you for sharing it. Thank you for all your time here and just all of the incredible work that you're doing. Um, you're truly making a tremendous impact. And, you know, I, we talked earlier about what everyday people can do to help combat human trafficking, to help survivors. Um, you know, so I'll certainly send them to the links that we mentioned any sort of last thoughts you want to share with those that are listening that, you know, just really want to get engaged. Yeah, I think I think when we talk about the issue of human trafficking, it can seem large. It can seem um, too big to to address, right? But what I want to share with people is that there is hope. You know, not just hope that we can do something, but hope for the individual, because I see it firsthand. And so I think sometimes we can be overwhelmed. We can be feeling like there's nothing that I can do. But I, I, I'd love to share with people that there is something that you can do. And, and, I, and I hope that people don't listen to this podcast and say, hey, that was great story time with Dan, because I don't intend it to be story time with me. I want it to be your story, right? And, and your story for the reason that change can happen. And it can happen when we do it together and that there is hope that lives can be changed when we take time to invest in them, even if it's just one at a time. And so um, I appreciate you shining light on this, allowing me to share um, and I hope people will get excited to get involved. Go visit worthwhileware.org. And there's plenty of ways that you can get engaged with us. And we want to see you take this on as your own story as well. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Um, appreciate the time. Look forward to continuing our conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. It was, it was great connecting with you, Jeff. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are the Answer. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with friends and reviews or subscriptions on your favorite platforms go a long way to help the show grow. I want to share these incredible people and their remarkable work with as many others as possible. Thanks for your support. For more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.